0: What if we reversed that, reversed the structure, and instead, um, artists were on salary uh, with guaranteed jobs year to year and health insurance and pension, and um, marketing agencies were contracted.
1: Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I am Rob Kramer, founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose
2: mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. So some of you may be a little confused and maybe asking <laughs> yourself, wasn't this podcast called Artists as Leader? <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. It was. But coming out of the tumultuous year that was 2020, it seemed appropriate to shift the focus of our conversations.
1: As you know, the pandemic wreaked havoc on countless artists' lives and showed how fragile so many existing creative ecosystems are. The nation's long overdue reckoning with systemic racial inequities and injustices also revealed entrenched exclusionary practices in so many artistic institutions, We knew that artists are visionary change agents. We recognize that this nation is due for change. So we thought, hey, let's ask artists what they'd most like to change in their fields and how exactly they go about implementing that change.
2: That's right. So in 2021, we'll focus specifically on the lessons of the past year. We'll be exploring questions such as what did 2020 clarify most needs to be reinvented in the arts and what might these ideal reinventions look like? So, new year, new president of the United States, new Congress. Congress, a vaccination that's rolling out, and a new podcast. Seems only right. So, let's get right to it, Pierre Carlo. Who is our first guest on Art Reets Art?
1: Her name is Sima Sueco. And until very recently, she was the deputy artistic director at the renowned theater company Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. She has long been a fervent believer in the power of communities to contribute to and transform theater and vice versa. And she's always put her money where her mouth is. In 2004, she co-founded Mo'olelo Performing Arts in San Diego, a theater company whose mission included telling diverse stories researched in and drawn from a multiplicity of communities. She then went on to become the Associate Artistic Director at Pasadena Playhouse, all along directing theater at some of the country's best-known companies. Sima spoke to me from Honolulu, Hawaii, where she grew up and unfortunately had to return a few days earlier to attend to a family emergency. I'm very grateful. She still made the time for this interview. I started by asking her to look forward before we look back and tell us about a project in 2021 that she's particularly excited about.
0: Oh, certainly. Thanks so much for asking this. Uh, I am engaged uh, as a director on a new musical called Land of Smiles by Aaron Kamler and the producer uh, is Gregory Franklin and he's interested in creating it as a podcast musical and so we're in the process of figuring out how to um, how to do that and that's a very exciting new project for me. Uh, This particular musical is set in Thailand and At first, it looks like it's a musical that's about um, sex trafficking, Uh, women who work in these brothels in Thailand and um, the Westerners who try to save them. Um, But it quickly reveals that it's a much more complicated issue than that. Um, uh, The women who are working in these brothels actually are choosing to go, some of them, uh, they're crossing the border from Burma because they are part of a minority group called the Kachin people um, under attack by the Myanmar army. And they are raising money um, to be able to fund the the rebel movement. And so Mm. what at first seems very clear cut is far more complex. So it's an exciting project to sink my teeth into.
1: And so it'll be a project that initially, at least, will be not seen on a stage, but distributed via podcast.
0: Interesting. Exactly. Yes.
1: Oh, what a great idea. Well, I'm excited about that, too. So let's circle back to 2020. And can you tell me about the most impactful ways in which 2020 affected your life?
0: Yes, 2020 impacted my creative professional life in small ways and big ways, At the start of the pandemic, I was serving as Deputy Artistic Director of Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. It's a position I had held for almost five years and absolutely loved. And early in the pandemic, um, we pivoted. Uh, I'm really pleased to say that we pivoted. I realized early on that artists still exist and are still very creative and talented and imaginative and that... Audience still exists and they were still hungry for the art, and that the only thing that was broken was the delivery system. And so, with my colleagues at Arena Stage, we created a new delivery system the Theater Artists Marketplace, which was a way to connect artists, their art, and their artistry with the public with no in person contact um, through a, a website where people can commission or purchase a work of art from, from these artists grace torena's stage. So we launched that in the middle of the summer and uh, and again that was such a pivot for the theater company. We also pivoted and started making films. But along the way as the pandemic wore on, I started doing some great introspection and values clarification and really clarified for myself that I wholeheartedly believe in the art form of theater that it is and can be transformative and can contribute to building healthy and successful communities. But that in order to do that, I recognized in that moment that I needed to more intentionally and deliberately activate my artistry for a public benefit, for a greater good. And, um, and as I was trying to figure out how to do that, We uh, heard from a a gentleman named Stephen Grunman, who's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a a think tank in Washington, D.C., and he reached out to Arena Stage um, because he uh, wanted help in producing, creating a a theatrical piece in an online format for Veterans Day. And uh, it was a project that excited me. I ended up directing this film called Veterans Day Twenty Twenty this think tank. And I absolutely loved working with the think tank. And I was so thrilled that as we, you know, we often say theater is so important, but I had hit a point where I was asking myself, important to who? And for the Atlantic Council to uh, reach out to us and say, we want theater and need theater to bridge this gap between veteran communities and ordinary civilians. um, That was energizing to me. So that led me to embark on a new initiative of of trying to um, activate my art form, animate animate my work uh, for the greater good, and to try to solve problems. So I sunsetted my position as deputy artistic director at Arena Stage on December fifteenth, and uh, have embarked on this new initiative.
1: Wow! So it sounds like the year the year really did make a drastic change, and it sounds like a wonderful change in your. Personal and professional life. When you look around at the theatrical field in general in America, what is it? I It seems sounds like you're interested in changing the ways you said modes of delivery to bring mm-hmm. theater closer to uh, to audiences to intended communities. What is it currently in theater that is not that is making that more difficult?
0: What a good question. You know, I'll approach this question more from a personal perspective, that part of the value clarification for me was really recognizing the impact that I personally wanted to make and um, and evaluating what's the best way for me to try to to make that. Um, and and a recognition that working within a theater organization had been what I what I did for a good majority of my um, professional career. Um but that maybe there were other ways to just try to make a, a direct impact, so I guess let, let me see if I can try to answer your question okay. <laughs> in another way um, i I had a recognition as I looked closer and closer at our organization and at theaters across the nation that um the artistic departments in many of these theaters, these large theaters is often uh, they're often the smallest departments. And um, the largest departments might be marketing and communications or the development fundraising department. Um, but the artistic is the smallest. And then maybe the next largest is production, the, the folks who um, build the scenery, uh, you know, uh, put up the lights, sit, uh, build the cautions, etc. But that in those production departments, a good majority of the employees are actually, um, contracted seasonally or paid hourly. And so as I just started thinking about a budget as a reflection of values, it became, it seemed to me that the the structures were undervaluing art and artists and artisans, even though that is what they do, make theater. Right, because
1: um, the average audience member would be, probably very shocked to learn that the artistic staff was actually by far the smallest staff.
0: Exactly. And I, and I realized, you know, part of my values is actually really um, centering um, artists and animating artists to be able to not only, you know, tell a beautiful story or paint a beautiful picture, but to activate that, that work for, for a greater good. And by sort of sidelining the artists, I felt like I, um, would not be able to do that within that structure, but outside of the structure and maybe in partnership with the structure, but from coming from the outside, I, I might be able to have a, a, a better chance at fulfilling and living out my values.
1: So tell us for, for people who, who don't know the way uh, institutional theaters work, why is, why is that imbalance currently? Why does it currently exist?
0: Oh boy. (laughs) Uh, I think we'd probably have to ask a number of people to get an answer to to that question. I I mean, as these institutions grew, you know, they're, they're, uh, I I'm talking about the nonprofit theater model and, um, marketing and development departments got created to be able to fulfill the needs of a subscription program. And, um, help pay the overhead of the building. And um, and I think they just grew to be machines. Now, Arena Stage, pre-pandemic, was a high-functioning machine that would produce 10 uh, robust productions a year, a number of world premieres. But to do it, it, it relied on this structure, which I have to admit, as I worked within the structure, I was quite blind to uh, that sort of... Uh, inequity between artists, artisan, and um, and admin, and in the pandemic when we needed to really pivot very quickly, was when I started seeing um, that imbalance, that admin to artist ratio imbalance.
1: What made what made you see it particularly in the pandemic?
0: Well, I could see how artists were pivoting quite quickly, and uh, but I felt a weight on the administrative side that um, was not pivoting or moving at a, at a slower weight rate, or even not wanting to pivot, um, because it was a structure that knew how to do what it did, uh, which is, you know, produce 10 shows a year, which was not going to happen. Um, and so there was a reluctance, I think, uh, amongst some on the admin side to pivot and that, that internal tension, um, I guess, like I said, my values were I I knew where I wanted to be and I wanted to pivot and um, rather than uh, fight it or try to fix people (laughs) internally, um, because I wouldn't want anybody to fix me, you know. I know how how impossible that is. I just thought, well, let me, I want to go where I can make the impact. And um, that's what led to that change.
1: In the current model of institutional nonprofit theaters, if you could go about changing this imbalance that you talk about between artistic and administrative supportive staff, how would you go about changing that?
0: Well, you know, uh, the commercial Broadway model, um, uh, in that model, the marketing department is contracted for the production marketing companies and agencies compete to be the one to promote that particular show and um
1: a broadway producer who wants to put up a broadway play
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: would ask for bids from marketing and advertising companies yep he, he wouldn't have them on his staff or her staff
0: um that's my understanding yes exactly and so just as um it, you know we audition actors they we ask for bids from actors right um to do a show uh what if we reversed that, reversed the structure and instead, um, artists were on salary, uh, with guaranteed jobs year to year and health insurance and pension and, um, marketing agencies were contracted to, uh, to compete to help tell the story, uh, out to the public and promote a show. So that's one thing to, to examine who is on salary and who is contracted and, and why.
1: How um, how are your projects or the way you're envisioning your career going forward? How do you think that might be a useful model for all sorts of theater artists? How could what you're doing translate to the field as a whole?
0: Well, I think our field as a whole has always suffered from not having enough job opportunities, even pre-pandemic. There were never enough jobs for artists, for the number of artists trained in university programs and conservatories. And, and those also who don't go through those programs, we, there was a lack of work. And um, I think part of what I'm trying to do is also surface new employers in different sectors for the artists. So, for example, this project with the think tank, with the Atlantic Council, they funded the making of that film that allowed us to contract not just me as the director, but nine actors, a theater sound designer, a theater projection designer, and, um, you know, put artists at work doing what artists do. And so thinking about that other sectors that might be able to, to hire artists, employ artists to help them animate their stories, heal their communities Uh, solve problems, but doing what artists do. I had heard a radio story on um, a woman who was a writer in residence at a hospital. And and she had been there before the pandemic. And her work was not to serve the patients as writer in residence, but to serve the staff. Hmm. And um, the staff, which was, you know, stressed and um, overworked. And she formed writing groups and would mentor them on their writing. And it just provided a creative outlet, which uh, was healing and and, uh, served as a way to balance out the work they do. And so, yeah, early in the pandemic, as I was thinking about the number of artists who, um, freelance artists who were looking at not just weeks and months without work, but, you know, a year, maybe a year and a half to two years without work, just started thinking, what would, How would they hang out their shingle, you know, uh, mm. and, and what could they offer the, the world? You know, if I were to say to you, Pier Carlo, I'd love for you to be the resident artist of my family, you mm. know, what would you be able to offer us? Um, or as I went to the grocery store and could see uh, the staff there, very stressed, double masked behind plexiglass, you know, what could we offer them? as uh, if we had put artists in residence um, throughout our communities during this pandemic and beyond the pandemic.
1: I wonder if you can talk a little bit about in terms of the pivot that you made based on, on questioning your own values or exploring that. What were the biggest challenges for you in making that decision, making that pivot? And how did you overcome them?
0: Wow, you know, um, I hit a point in August where it actually seemed so very clear to me yeah it it just felt very clear to me that I needed to to make a, a change and I spoke about it with Molly Smith uh she's the artistic director of Arena Stage she's my boss my mentor and my enduring friend and when I first shared this uh this feeling I was having she was surprised and um uh, shocked and sad you know but she also as she heard me speak about this very uh deep need I was I was feeling she could hear that it was so authentic and true and ultimately um was very supportive of me making this change we I said to her though look it could look very bad if you're that your deputy artistic director who's a woman of color is leaving at this moment and to go to uh not another job, but to just go out into the world, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and um, uh, I, I said, "So let's manage this transition. We're, we're two two smart ladies. We can um, make it a very elegant transition, and, and so that she isn't harmed, that I'm not harmed, and that it opens up opportunities for others at Arena Stage um, to to flourish." So um, we spent. You know, that was in August. I think it wasn't until October when we announced it internally and, and to the board. Um, and then, and, and use the time in those uh, weeks to very deli- deliberately um, and try as much as possible seamlessly to, to do the transition.
1: Wow. Two adults acting like adults. That's remarkable.
0: <laughs> well, Molly is really a remarkable uh, a woman and leader and we have that the kind of relationship where we can be honest with one another and um, and speak our truths and that's all kudos to her because that's how she leads mm-hmm. and um, and how uh, she taught me through the years that I've known her
1: well, nothing like a national crisis to make you re-examine your values huh <laughs> You know, one thing really struck me, I can really attest from experience to what she's saying about this counterintuitive balance or imbalance in the staffing of regional theaters. At the theater where I worked for many years, if you as a stranger had been dropped into our administrative building and you'd just been asked to wander around and guess what kind of business this was, you know, based on what people were actually doing in the building, you would have guessed we were in the business of fundraising not making art. Because in fact, the fundraising department was larger than the artistic staff by orders of magnitude. When I reflect back on entering those
2: buildings, unless you happen to stumble upon the theater space itself, it might look like any office building or just administrative Mm -hmm. building or an academic building that you would see anywhere. Uh, It would not be immediately apparent that it's a theater space or an artistic space.
1: Yeah, so it seems uh, intuitive and right that we should find ways to center artists in artistic institutions and let them earn a living. But speaking about the way she re- re-examine your values, uh, Rob, you're a leadership expert and coach, and and of course, you frequently help individuals make the kind of career pivots that Sema has made. How does an artist who may not yet have as clear a vision as Sema? Take stock of her values and then go about making a change to honor those values.
2: Yeah, you know that's a really great question, and and I, I do get that a lot with my clients. Um, sometimes they're clear they want to make a change. Sometimes they're not until we start talking about where they are, either in terms of uh, the phase of their career or even the phase of their life. But it's a pretty common topic that'll come up. With my coaching clients so as this becomes a little more surfaced for folks something i'll often ask clients to do is what i call a value self-assessment and as an example i'll share with you one method that uh uh, that i do i'm happy to share with our listeners okay it doesn't love homework good transformational (laughs) homework we'll take it some free coaching for you so uh, divide Mm -hmm. a sheet of paper into three columns and in the first column you'll list as many things as you can that you value about your work. And so that's a, that's a living document. So at first you might just list out, I don't know, 10, 12 things, but as you think more, the list could get longer. So it's living and breathing. You can constantly add to it, but you, you list out what you see as what, the things you value about your work. And then in the next column, you do a gut check and you ask yourself uh, on a one to 10 scale, as I look at these items in the first column, 10 being high, uh, how much do I value this value? So if I value it tremendously, the highest possible, I give it a ten. If I if I sort of value it, I might give it a three or a two. You know, you just sort of do a gut check. Don't overthink it. And so you give those numbers uh, for each of your values, and then you go to the third column. And in the third column, you then ask yourself again on a scale of one to ten, how well am I doing at getting each of these values met? And and when people do this activity, I, I regularly see. Uh, It helps them get clear on the congruencies or inconsistencies that one has with one's values versus the actions they take uh, Mm -hmm. to get those values met. And it can be very, very powerful exercise for folks. Additionally, I would ask the client to explore questions, perhaps like uh, uh, at this chapter in your life, what's in your control? Are there things you have to accept? Uh, Are there components that are non-negotiable for you? So this type of inquiry really tends to prompt an exploration of personal clarity. uh, Really, the biggest thing I say is it unearths decision-making points that they can then own. Oftentimes, when people are going through career transitions, they feel like a lot of things are out of their control, and this allows them to Mm -hmm. find things that are in their control they can make clear decisions about. Uh, And so once we start to get to those, then we can start considering what are the possibilities and barriers of each of those transition markers and what might be next steps for them.
1: And of course, Seema was working for seems to me a remarkable leader who didn't immediately get defensive. Yeah, so Helps a lot. So there's a lesson there for leaders and bosses yeah. to actually work with your workers who are wanting to adhere to their values rather than panicking and retrenching into defensiveness.
2: Agreed. And some of the best leaders, you may have heard this, Pierre Carlo, will often say that they, when they hire people, they have the expectation they're going right. to help develop them so that they can eventually move on. They're not trying to hire mm-hmm. them to keep them and hoard them forever, but their job right. is to really grow their capacity so they can move on to the next great thing for themselves.
1: Well, I can't wait to see what Seema does and the way she inspires others to change this mode of delivery yes. to audiences.
2: Yes, me too. Please make sure to subscribe so you'll be alerted when our next episode airs. You don't want to miss it because we'll be interviewing the internationally
1: renowned conductor, Marin Alsop. Who has been a visionary throughout her career, so I can't wait to hear what she'd like to restart and how. <laughs> our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks for listening.